As you'll recall, we had a couple of week break from our series called Foundations. We had a Christmas message, of course, since that seems appropriate, and we had an end of year message last week where I introduced the theme of 2020. Just a short quiz for those of you who are here. Did anybody know what the theme is supposed to be for this year? Back to the basics, that's right. Not that I grade at all or that I... Sometimes some of you come up and talk to me, by the way, and talk about something I said in a message somewhere, and I have to confess that I don't remember what I said, and so I can't be hard on you if you don't remember what I teach, if I don't always remember what I teach, so. Um, but uh, it'll be our, our, our endeavor this year to uh, journey back or, or pay a special attention to being back to the basics of loving God, putting Him first, and loving others. But for today, we're going to come back to our series of foundations. This is a, uh, a series, we're actually nearing the end of the first part of it anyway, which is a series of going through, uh, those of you from church here know that the, the statement of the, uh, theology that we have. I think there's still copies out there on the, the literature rack back there. If you have lost yours or you've never gotten one, uh, pick one up. That's really kind of being the, the guiding one for us. We really have, this week we have Satan. Next week, we're going to talk about what we believe about the state. And the last week, we talk about what we believe about last things, which, believe me, I can say this with everything I'm saying, but certainly that last one, uh, there's no way that in, an, in a, one Sunday morning message, we're going to teach anything comprehensive in terms of, like, details or, or how we expect, but it's going to be an overview of what we believe about the last things. Today, as Merlin alluded to already, I, I kept sort of shuffling this around, and at some level felt wrong to spend a whole Sunday morning message talking about Satan, who is like not who we talk about in church. We talk about Jesus, right? But as I was preparing and studying for this, I realized like there's some really not only necessary stuff for us to talk about, but honestly, uh, this can be really, um, I believe this can be really encouraging for us. Because not only do we talk about, say we'll get there, but not only do we talk about who Satan is and what he's doing and kind of thing, but we get to, we, we get to talk about what the end of Satan is going to be. And that's really, what, that's, that's really important for us. So anyway, I should jump in. I don't want to spend more time with... Uh, I'm going to read, as I always do to start this off, I'm going to read the actual official sort of theological words that we say from our statement of theology about Satan. Satan is a fallen angel who had rebelled against God. He is known as the prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world, and the god of this age. Those are uh, uh, titles assigned to him in Scripture. He is a liar, a deceiver, a cunning tempter, and a destroyer. Satan and his demons are a powerful and vast kingdom and are active in the present age and world, opposing God's kingdom, seeking to destroy God's people, holding many people in bondage, and claiming many worshipers. Satan was defeated in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is restricted in his activity by God's power and permission, and is destined for eternal punishment in the lake of fire. So as normal, what I do is I read that, and then I'm going to try to put some flesh to and and give some, hopefully, some understandable and some memorable things that help us figure out all the details through this. We're going to talk about who Satan is today, and I'm going to start again, as I have done the last couple of weeks, with sort of a a text that I think we can use as a a background text the entire way through. We're going to go all the way to the end of the Bible. If you have your Bibles, I would ask you to join me. I want to read Revelation chapter 12. As John is being revealed, uh, some things that have happened, some things that are going to happen, and way far-reaching. Now, if you think about when John saw these things, really far-reaching, right? Like, Like millennia after he saw them. As he's in the middle of that, he gets to see some glimpses, and they're helpful for us to understand some things behind the scenes. So I want to read Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 
12, as we start off here, and this is going to be, again, kind of, a, kind of a background as we work through the text, as we work through the stuff this morning, a background text for us to kind of keep referring to. This is what John says in chapter 12, verse 7 of Revelation. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. The dragon was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. And here we get to find out who the dragon is. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Verse 11, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. It's our first glimpse into what the Bible has to say about Satan. And by the way, uh, I don't know if I would say there's a lot in the Bible about Satan. I think rightfully so. There's far more about God and who God is and about Jesus Christ, his son. But there is some stuff we can pick out about Satan because he keeps coming up. He keeps coming. He's part of our lives and he keeps coming up in the conversation. I'm going to choose today to break down uh, my message into three parts. The first part is who he was, who Satan was. Was For us to understand accurately and get a glimpse of what we believe about Satan, we have to kind of get a, a picture or an idea of who Satan was. Who did he used to be? Now, we can actually start this right here in this text. But before I, I point out that verse, let me just read a few more verses. I believe when we're re- I started reading in verse 7, right, in Revelation chapter 12. And this is, I'm hoping this is not going to get too confusing. I started reading in verse 7, but there's, there's a couple of verses that come before that that I want to read as sort of background. I believe in verse 7 through the end of the chapter, verse 12, John is filling in some details of the first six verses. You see, the first six verses contain what he's actually seeing. So let me read them, and I'll try to explain that a bit. As he is, as he's seeing these things unfold in heaven, John is seeing all this stuff unfold, and it says in verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, I believe, I'm going to tell you, I believe that this woman represents humanity in general and the people of Israel specifically. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And then he says in verse 3, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, way more details than what we can get into this morning, but I want just to understand that as John is seeing this vision, he's seeing these great signs, and they're in heaven, but the action quickly comes down to earth, right? He sees the sign of the woman in heaven, and he sees the sign of the dragon, and we immediately understand that there is tension between the two of them, right? The woman is about to give birth. 
Now we get a clue in, what is it, verse, uh, the reason I said it's Israel specifically is because in verse 5, it says that she's going to give birth to a male child who will rule the nations. Who is, he, who is that talking about? That's Jesus, right? And that serpent is opposing this woman, and he's waiting to snatch this child the moment he's born. Now, we know who the serpent is. I already, we, already, we talked about this, but the serpent is Satan, of course. And there's this great battle happening. Now, you see that actually he saw the signs in heaven, but we quickly realize this is happening on earth. Now, there's lots of things there, but I, I believe, uh, what, what I, I want to say all that to say this. I, it's sort of as if this, this question happened as John is seeing these signs, and I don't, we don't get any kind of like notion that he actually asked the question, but he's wondering, what, what does this mean, or how is this? And I, I think we should read verses 7 to the end of the chapter as a fuller explanation of what he was seeing with these signs and this battle is happening. Because it goes back then. It goes back and says, now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels were fighting against the dragon. This is what happens. But here's what I want to get to. Who Satan was. Look at verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, if we are carefully looking at those words, if he says that Satan was thrown down and his angels with him, by implication, that means what? Where was he to start with? He was in heaven. He was not here. He was thrown down. Now, in fact, when you go back, I read these verses, but you look back, Michael was fighting and his angels... Sorry, I gotta, I, verse 7, I flipped the page, I shouldn't have. Michael and his, his angels were fighting, and the dragon and his angels. This was the cosmic battle that began in heaven, actually. But who won the battle? Michael did, right? Michael and his angels. Who won the, you can say this. Is, you guys know, I, I like to be interactive. I don't, I don't like to talk to a bunch of people who are just sitting there staring back at me. Michael and his angels won the battle, and Satan was thrown down along with all of his angels. Now, I don't know if you know this, but there's a couple of sections in the Old Testament. I'm going to read these verses for you. A couple of sections in the Old Testament that are written about earthly kings, but I was going to say most, but maybe I should say many. Many biblical scholars believe are actually written about Satan because he is actually the power that's behind those earthly kings. These are evil kings, Babylonian kings, uh, the king of Tyre, for example. We're going to read about some of these. Let me go to, uh, and you can flip there with me, Isaiah chapter 14. If you look at Isaiah chapter 14, here's what it says, and here's why I believe this is not just about the kings of Babylon or about the nation of Babylon, but it's very specifically about the evil power that is behind the people of Babylon, the king of Babylon. Isaiah chapter 14. Now there's more verses, but I'm going to just start reading in verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. Now, we could be talking about earthly kings and earthly people, right? But it would seem strange that the a prophecy, that God would speak through a prophet and would use these kind of words for an earthly person. You have fallen so far from heaven. I submit to you he's no longer talking about this earthly king. He is talking about Satan. He's talking about the one who is behind 
that evil earthly king. He's telling us a bit. He's giving us a glimpse. And if you keep reading, it tells us, in fact, what this great conflict that, we, that John was seeing between Michael and his angels and Satan and his angels, the great conflict, why there was a conflict to start with. You, what would you say? You read these verses. What, and I give you a little clue because I could put a verse up on the screen here. But what, what would you say that conflict was about? What was the battle? Why was there a battle to start with? If Satan was, was created by God and he was in heaven with the angels, right where the other angels were, why was there a battle? Why was there a fight? You said in your heart, he's talking about Satan, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will be above the stars. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Real quickly, because we talked about this back in our foundation study, back when we talked about man. Real quickly, when you visualize the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve, and you see the serpent coming to tempt them, with what temptation does he come to Adam and Eve with? With what does he lure them? With what does he say, hey, this is what you could be like? Isn't that exactly what the serpent says? You know that when you eat of this fruit, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. Do you see how this matches up? Do you see that what he did in the garden was only what he had already done in heaven? Was already what he had done as he fought as, he was, as, as a result of that was the fight. I should put that. It was already what he had done then. Let me read a few more verses to you that say much of the same thing, but it kind of sent this home. Ezekiel, this time in Ezekiel chapter 28. If you want to turn there, you can. Ezekiel 28, again, verses 12 through 15. It says it's a, about a message or a lament or a, uh, over the king of Tyre. But again, not only is it applied to that specific king, which it was about him, but it's about the one who's behind him, about Satan. This is what the word of the Lord says. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now, do you think he's talking about an earthly king? I don't think those words perfectly apply to an earthly king. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Whoa, now he's definitely not talking about the king of Tyre, right? Not anymore. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond. Beryl, onyx, and jasper. Sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your setting and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. That tells us, by the way, that Satan is the created being of God. I, I already said that, but I want to make sure I, 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 I clarify that. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. And then look at the last half of that verse. Till unrighteousness was found in you. If I were to ask you, as we're sort of cementing what we believe about Satan, if I were to ask you, as a created angel of God, how close was Satan to God? How, how close, how near how intimate with God was Satan? When I read these words, it says, I placed you in the holy mountain in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. He was right there. 
From the day I created you, he says, you were blameless until unrighteousness was found. This gives us a glimpse of who Satan was. Now, I don't want to take a long time with this because that's, that's not where we want to spend our time. I want to talk more about what's happening now because that's in the past. That's like way back there. I don't know exactly, but that's like way back there. That's who he was. Now, I want to get to what does he do? But I want to read some more verses going back to Revelation chapter 12 because I want to keep giving us a little more background. I didn't actually finish reading the more, uh, more, more fleshed out detail. So he saw the two signs, the woman and the dragon. He sees that there's this great contest, but he's not quite sure about it. So he, he gets more details filled in. The great dragon, the serpent was thrown down with his battle and he tried, he, 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 he couldn't ascend to God, so God threw him down to the earth and he says, woe to the earth. But let's keep reading in verse 13 because it says that the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth and he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. So he's going after now more of God's creation, if I can just put it that way. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and a half a time. That corresponds to the 1,260 days I just read earlier. Verse 15. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And we're going to get, keep on reading verse chapter 13, which we're not going to do. Lots of things that are there that we could pick out. Lots of, th lots of you maybe are very uh, intrigued with prophecy and those kind of things. I'm not going to talk about that symbolism. I don't even know most of that stuff. I've never studied it. I'm not, I, I don't understand a lot of that stuff. But suffice to say, we can see this picture, right? Satan thrown down. His first goal is what? To pursue the woman, who I'm telling you is Israel because she's giving birth to Jesus, trying to snatch this child, picture Herod, like a maniac, trying to kill every baby who's ever, that's been born in the last two years to make sure he gets the Messiah. That's not just Herod, by the way. I mean, Herod was a megalomaniac, crazy guy. But that's not just Herod. You understand that, right? That's Satan. That's Satan pursuing the male child that was born of the woman. When that doesn't happen, then what does he do? And this is very pertinent to us today, by the way. Then what does he do? When the dragon saw that he could not find either the woman or could not fight or kill the woman or the son, what does he do? Look at verse 17. He goes off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Who is that referring to, may I ask? That's us. Look at what it says. It says, to those who keep the commandments of God and hold on to the testimony of Jesus. That's us. That's why we have to talk about what Satan does. What does he do? Because according to what John saw, he recognized that this great battle that began in heaven and spilled over into the earth because he got kicked down into here. And then when Jesus came and this big conflict is happening, now is greatly affecting anybody who would want to follow God. Again, we can start right in the text where we're at. In verse 10, I believe it is, of, the, of Revelation chapter 12, it says, a loud voice came from heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and kingdom of a God and authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. Apart from all the other stuff that's being said, right away we get a glimpse of one of the things that Satan does. The word's in there twice. 
he accuses men. He accuses them. He tries to find fault with them. Once again, picture the book of Job. Picture Satan coming into God's presence and saying, as God says, have you seen my servant Job? And Satan says, oh yeah, but he, would, he, would not, he, would, he begins to accuse him. That's what he's doing. He begins to accuse him. Now, you guys know how I like to do this. I like to have some interaction. I like to give you some verse references and have you read them. So you have them in your handout, but let's read from Scripture what we can glean what Satan does today. He, we know he accuses. We know there's a big battle going on, but let's get some specifics. So let's start with John chapter 8, verse 44. Can someone read for us? Uh, if you get the reference, just uh, you, you can stand up and read it, or if you don't want to stand up, make sure you're reading it in a nice, loud, clear voice. Someone read John chapter 8, verse 44. All right, there's actually two things we learn about Satan in that verse. The first is, do you notice that phrase that Chris read? He is a murderer from the beginning. Now, this is not talking about the beginning, like, it's the beginning of human history. He is a murderer. Now, think a little bit why that's true. It's very literally true, by the way. Why is that true? Why is it true that Satan was a murderer from the beginning? What's the first thing he did with humankind? He came and tempted them to sin, Right? And when we sin, what happens? We die. Satan led us to death. He is a murderer from the beginning. But the greater part I want to pull out from that is, we know he's an accuser, but on top of that, he's not bringing accurate accusations, is he? Because it says, when he speaks, it's a lie, and that's the only thing he can do, because that's his very character. He's the father of lies. Whenever he says, it's in lies. So he comes with Lies. Now, I can tell you with 100% certainty that every one of you, whether you're willing to acknowledge it or what, to what level you've experienced this, you absolutely know, if you have any kind of awareness at all, that Satan comes and speaks with lies to you. All the time. Far often than we probably are willing to admit. When he says things to us, and he often tries to say things to us, when he does, they are lies. He's an accuser, and he's the father of lies, and when he does that, he's, we should remember this, he's a murderer from the beginning, which means when he's saying things, his intention is for us to die. Let's keep reading, because there's more things we've got to flesh out. So we know he's an accuser, he's a liar, he's a murderer. Now, when Paul writes his second letter to the Thessalonians, he spends some time talking about the coming judgment of Christ, but what must precede that is what he calls the man of lawlessness coming. In other places in Scripture, he's called the Antichrist the one who opposes Jesus, the man of lawlessness coming. Now, I'm going to just pull just a couple of verses out. Someone read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Again, we're going to get a glimpse at what Satan is doing, what he's, what he's all about. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Someone read that out loud for us, nice and clear. Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. 
Again, there's two things. If you're paying attention to that verse, there's two things we actually learn about this. One, fitting in, right? As a father of lies, as one who lies all the time, his primary mode of operation is deception. He will deceive. That's what exactly what he says. He says, the man of lawlessness will come by the activity of Satan. He will deceive those people so that they cannot receive the truth and, be, and thus be saved. But I also want us to pick up something else that's in there. It says that this activity of Satan will come in, I believe in what you read, it said, in false miracles, signs, and wonders. In false miracles, signs, and wonders. Now pay attention to that. We have at times been led to believe that any moment or any time something miraculous happens, it must be God because he's the God of miracles. That's a logical fallacy. If you don't know what that means, it just means it's not true. He is the God of miracles. That does not mean anything miraculous comes from him. Look at what that just said. It said that the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, will come ushered in on the activity of Satan who will come with all kinds of miracles, signs, and wonders, but they will be false. They will not be from God. Again, I think sometimes we're a little, if I can use the word naive, we're a little naive in thinking if something supernatural happens, it must be God. If you would continue reading in chapter 13 of Revelation, you would understand that there's some very supernatural things that Satan is going to do, like bringing someone back to life, like causing an image that's lifeless to speak. That's pretty supernatural, isn't it? but not God. He is the counterfeit. He is the father of lies. He is the deceiving one. He will deceive those so that they will be opposing the truth and therefore not saved. Now, we can sum a lot of this up by what Peter wrote about Satan. If someone either knows what it says or will look it up, look up 1 Peter 5, 8. 1 Peter 5, 8. Anybody know what that says? Can anybody quote that, by the way? It's a good verse to be able to quote. It's pretty short, easy to understand. Be sober, be vigilant. Two different words working together. Pay attention. Don't be caught up with all the whims and fancies of life and just keep, be sober and vigilant because you have an enemy and he's pictured by Peter as a lion who's prowling about, roaring and wanting to devour people. This is who Satan is. The adversary who lies, who accuses, who wants to murder, who deceives, who will do anything and everything he possibly can to devour to destroy. Let me read this. When Peter is bringing the gospel to the Gentiles for the first time in the book of Acts, we just came through studying the book of Acts not too long ago. When he brings them the gospel, among other things, this is what he says. He's making his point and he's saying, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Peter was very clear as he spoke to the Gentiles that Jesus was sent. He was anointed by God. He was the one that God sent and, in fact, sent him with power and filled with the Holy Spirit, not like Satan, who is filled with a different spirit, who is filled with false power. It's power, but not, not authentic God power. 
And he said he sent Jesus, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed. Again, if I want a capstone statement about Satan, this is what I want to say to you. His goal is to oppress you. It stands in complete opposite to what you see Jesus doing, right? Jesus goes about doing good. Satan goes about with evil and oppressiveness. Now, this is a good bridge for what we have to say because I noticed I started out by who he was. I want to talk about what he does, but honestly, the biggest section we have to end with is who he is, present tense, not who he used to be. And maybe I shouldn't say who he is, but what his status is, his current status is. We talk about what he's doing, and he's doing those things. But as a good transition, what that act was a good transition because Jesus did come on the scene. This is what Satan was about, but Jesus did come on the scene. God sent it. We've been spending time talking about that. When John wrote his first epistle, he wrote this. He said, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You see this picture John saw when he saw these signs in heaven? He saw this, this big battle taking place, Satan and the woman and the followers of, women, and the, of the woman and all this, this big, great big battle. And God said through John, he said, the reason the Son of Man came was to destroy the works of the devil. We must now ask ourselves that question. Did he succeed? If God is going to tell us, this is a very important question, by the way. It makes all the difference in our statement of theology, in our foundation, in what we believe and how we act based on what we believe. If God is unashamed to tell us in his word that the very reason he sent Jesus was to destroy what Satan was doing, we must ask the question, did he succeed? Did God accomplish through Jesus what he sent him to accomplish, or did he not? Well, we can get some clues. Again, I'm going to go back to Revelation chapter 12. This time in verse 12, we can get a few clues. When Satan was thrown down, notice that John hears this voice, and the voice says, Rejoice in the heavens and those who dwell there, but woe to those on earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Why? Because he knows his time is short. There's your opening clue as to who wins. There's your opening sort of crack in the door as to this big battle that John is seeing. And he's seeing it unfold in front of him. And there's this, there's, I'm sure there's, he, he's, whoa, this is an immense battle. But here's the opening clue as to how the battle is going to end. But there is far more than an opening clue in Scripture. There's far more than a crack in a door. There's far more than a, well, maybe this is how it's going to work out. Let's, for example, go to Paul's letter to the Romans. Some of our favorite verses, I've heard some of you say this, and I myself count these as some of my favorite verses. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Look at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, I'm going to stop right there for a moment. 
Because I want you to see that these verses stand in direct opposition to the verses we learned about, about Satan, what he's doing. What does Satan do? He accuses. He condemns. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is interceding for us. What Paul is telling us is that when God sent Jesus, and he uses the key words, he says he brought him down, he sent him, and he died, but even more was brought back to life, and he's even now at the right hand. Who is now at the right hand of God? Who is now beside God? Who now has close and intimate access to God? Not Satan anymore, right? Long gone. Jesus is, and he's interceding for us on our behalf. Everything that Satan wants to accuse us with is counteracted and, and made known to be false and not true for those who are in Christ before God by our Savior, Jesus Christ. He has destroyed the work of Satan. This is why Paul says, just a few verses later, I'm sure that neither death nor life, if Jesus was, was died and was raised again, neither death nor life nor things, I'm sorry, I skipped a line there, nor, nor angels, nor rulers. Angels are rulers. Who are we talking about here? Who is, he, who, who is in the back of his head as he's writing these words? It's Satan. He's realizing that Jesus has done exactly what God sent him to accomplish. I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If that's true, if there's no one left to condemn because Jesus is there interceding for us, who has died for us, who has justified us, if there's no one left, then there's nothing that can separate us. But I want to get even, even, even deeper into this. At the end of the, his letter, to the first letter to the Corinthians, Paul has chapter 15, an incredible letter, an incredible chapter of his letter, I should say, that we, that we have, that gives us this incredible evidence of what happens because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What will happen to us because in the resurrection? I don't have time to go into all the way. We have, there's way more here, but I want to read just a few more verses. In verse 53 of chapter, uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, it says, For this perishable body, what we have today, what's, what's sitting here in these pews for all of us, is a perishable body. It must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. And here is the saying. Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What was Satan's trump card? What did he do, come to do from the very beginning? You can become like God, and you'll know good and evil, and knowing full well that when that happens, sin is introduced, and then comes death. Death is his trump card. Death is what he had to hold. Death was what was his victory. For if he can get you to be separated from God here and then die in that separation, you will be eternally separated and you have no hope forever. Just like he doesn't. But his trump card was snatched away. Paul is building his case and through chapter 15 he says, I tell you, Jesus was brought back from the dead. And it makes all the difference in our lives now, but even beyond. Because he said these perishable bodies, they have to become imperishable. And when they do, here's the saying that will come true. Death, where's your victory? Where's your sting? It's gone. Because death in that case only becomes the transition point to eternal life in which you have God forever. What was meant to be the victory for Satan is actually his crushing utter defeat. 
Because in that moment, you can no longer be touched anymore. And you are with your Savior and your Maker forever. This is the God that we serve. This is what he has done through Jesus. This is who Satan is. Oh, he's fighting and he's kicking. And he's deceiving and he's lying. And he's oppressing. And we're suffering greatly. There's an end. May I say before I move to that end that John even gave a glimpse of that in Revelation as he's talking about Satan and being thrown down in this battle and all those things. Even in there, the clue comes for us. This is verse 11 from Revelation 12. Look at what it says. Those that overcame, they conquered Satan by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And look at what it says. You could have picked many other things to say, but he says this. For they love not their lives, even unto death. I'm telling you, friends, brothers and sisters, death is what Satan comes at, with, at us with everything he has to lie and to deceive and to say that that's the scariest moment, that's the end of it, that's the moment we don't know anything beyond and that God is not going to be faithful and that we may not be right and he accuses us and he accuses us and he accuses us. But the key lies for those of us who understand that we will not love our lives even to death. That's all Satan can do. He can kill me. But as Paul would say, who cares? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm better off. Send me to that portal. Send me to that doorway. I'll go gladly. Because then I'm with my Father and my Savior. They overcame the, lamb, the, the Satan because of the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony that Jesus did what he said he came to do. And they loved their lives not even unto death. But let's come to the end. Let's come to the final end that we know is written about in Scripture. We know who Satan is. Oh, he's fighting. He's full of wrath. And he's, he's prowling around wanting to devour any and everybody. Don't, let's not make any mistake. But the end has been made clear. A few weeks ago when we were doing this study for an entirely different reason, we went to Matthew chapter 25 as Jesus gave us a glimpse of what it will look like at the final scene of judgment. Remember the scene, Jesus is sitting on the throne and he'll separate people like sheep and goats. You know that story, right? The day of judgment. I don't, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want to read one verse because I think it's very key as we believe what we believe about Satan and what we believe about us, quite frankly. Matthew 25, 41, as he comes, he's already talked to those on the right, but he comes to those on the left. He says to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And I would suggest that most times when we read those verses, we read them very human-focused because that's who we are. We're humans. And we look at that and we say, this is the scene of judgment, and if I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing, then I'm on the left, I'm with the goats, and I get sent into hell. And that's all factually correct. But I want us to pay careful attention to the words in this verse that Jesus says. These are words from the Son of God. He says to those who are departing, where are they going? They're going into the eternal fire that's prepared for who? The devil and his angels. You know Satan's a liar, right? You know he deceives. I want to make sure that we understand that we never believe the lie that not only Satan, but we hear in many voices from the world to say, how can we call God loving when he's made hell for us? No, 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 no. He did not make hell for us. Look at what Jesus said. Who did he make hell for? Satan and his angels. 
This is what we believe about him. That when that conquest, that fight, that usurpation, that rebellion against God began in heaven, God prepared a place for Satan to be forever and ever away from him. He said, if you want to exalt yourself to the highest place, I will put you to the furthest place away from me in torment forever and ever. He did not make hell for us or even for humans who disobey him. The unfortunate truth is, for those who do not obey him or those who do not, are not saved, who are not in the blood of Christ, that will be their destiny because they have been deceived by Satan and will follow the one that they're after. And you may think it's a small point because in the end it's the same result, but I think it's important in our theology to be correct. When God says, it is not my desire that any should perish, but that all come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that's exactly what he means. It is not his desire that any would taste the torment of hell. For he has designed that for Satan and his angels. The unfortunate reality is, he's given us choice. And Jesus said, broad is the road to destruction. And many find it and walk on it. But it is our choice. And it's not what God wanted. But let me finish this. Let me come to words that we love to hear. Because we want to find out what the reality, the current status of Satan is. Again, I want to just ask for your participation. If someone, it's a couple of verses, so if you're willing to read a couple of verses, someone read Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. Step number one, Satan thrown down with all of his angels, a mighty battle happening. We're in the middle of it. We are in the middle of it. We're being fought over, if you want to put it that way. But the day is coming. John saw it. God said it. This is what's going to happen. I don't know all the details, but the day is coming when Satan will be, re re will be, will be removed from that equation. The angel came, and he put him into the, the pit, the abyss. And he, with a great chain, and he locks him up for a thousand years. Now, that's the first step. There's some more verses there. I'm not going to read those more verses there and talk about what happened during those thousand years. But at the end of the thousand years, let's get to that. How about someone read verses 7 through 10? Just skip. Your eyes are already there. If you, if you open your Bible there, just skip a couple verses down. Read 7 through 10. This is at the end of the thousand years. That's the final word. If there's anything we have learned, brothers and sisters, from studying God's word every Sunday morning for years and years, if there's anything we have learned is that when God said it, it's done. Those are the final words. 
that we're looking for. If we want to know the current status of Satan, we can talk about who he was. We can even talk about what he does, and we should perhaps talk more about what he does. We should be more aware sometimes of what he does. We should not hide in fear, however, because the end has been written. The end has been shown to us, and that was the end. Did you catch that? He will once again deceive, because that's all he knows. When he speaks, he speaks lies, because that's all he can do. It's his character. He will deceive and bring them as if they somehow could mount a final assault against God and win. I've told you this before. I love sometimes in the great epic things that are drawn out of Scripture how ironically simple it is sometimes. How short-winded God is sometimes in those matters. For when you listen when Bryce read, it just says, but, angel, uh, but fire came down from heaven and consumed those who were deceived and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. End of the story. My time is already out. Permit me, if you will. These things are all good and well on a theoretical level. The problem is you and I don't live on theoretical levels, do we? We live in the everyday. Nitty-gritty, dirt, mud, blood, tears, anguish. I share these things. This message has to come. This, this foundation has to be laid. But we have to understand. We must believe this with everything we have before it begins to come out in us that this is true. That this is what's really going to happen. That all the assault, that all, everything the enemy can throw at me, and it could bring death. Actually, because of what he's done, will bring death, because that's why we're dying. That's why we die physically. Because of sin being introduced. But all those things... If we can hang on to that rope that says, we know that Jesus has accomplished what he was sent forth to accomplish. We know the end. We know this is chapter 20 even in Revelation. And there's a few more chapters coming that describe the glorious things that God will do for those who have endured. I can't give time to it. I wasn't, I'm not prepared to give time to it necessarily. I want to read it and allow the Holy Spirit to lead you in application, but I cannot end this message without reading these words because if anything we have learned today that we are in the midst of an incredible epic battle, one who would suppose himself to be equal to God but is not even, not even close. That should be said very clearly. It is God's created being. He's not even close. He never will be. He never has been. But still, would deceive himself and us many times in thinking that he somehow can get close. He somehow has equal or opposite power to God. We are in the middle of that. Let me read these words that Paul wrote to Ephesians chapter 6 because we are in that battle. We must wake up tomorrow morning and walk through this life filled with sin and heartache and tears and all kinds of oppression and lying from Satan and accusing from him and all the things we read about that he's doing in an attempt to get us off, off the course. Finally, Paul wrote, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He knew where the fight lied. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Again, I don't have time to treat this with you this morning, but may you take these words and ask the Holy Spirit how to apply them literally in your life. That's how they're meant to be taken. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Can I say that word phrase again? To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I'm going to wrap together my closing prayers. Would you stand this morning? We're going to pray and my closing prayer together. I want to invite you this morning as I close my prayers, I pray and close with our prayer that you would see yourself, however you want to visualize it, you would see yourself putting on this armor, that you'd be prepared to stand firm. God, we would come to you this morning as we have studied your word, as we come and let you speak to us from your word. We recognize that several things may be happening at once. One is the realization that we sometimes underestimate Satan. The other is the fact that we sometimes give him too much credit. If I can say both of those and be true in the same sentence, that seems odd, but it's true. We sometimes have given him too much room in our lives. We have not always recognized that as a deceiver, as a liar, as a murderer, as an oppressor, as one who wants to devour and destroy, he does not have my interest in mind and he does not have right to me, for I have one. If I'm in Christ, I have one who is at the right hand of God himself, who is interceding for me, who cannot, who makes it impossible for me to be separated from the love that you have for me, God. If we would have read those words, we would have read this morning, God, that you, in, in fact, exhorted us in the New Testament that we can rebuke Satan. That he will flee from us when we do so in the name of Jesus Christ. But if nothing else, God, this morning you've helped us on a broad level to see that there is a great conflict, that there is one who is a pretender, who will never, ever, ever even get close to being like you, but a pretender who is doing everything he can in a short time to bring others into defiance and rebellion against you. God, I don't want that to be me. I want to be soft-hearted, humble before you, filled with your Holy Spirit. Today, it is our prayer, God, as we are ready to leave this, it is our prayer that you would enable us to stand and you've given us the picture of this armor that we would see ourselves belting on the belt of truth. Your truth sets us free. That we would put on the breastplate of righteousness. His name is Jesus. 
He is our righteousness. He is our protector. He is the one who will guard our hearts for it should be guarded above all else for it's the wellspring of life. That our shoes should be put on making our feet ready to share this gospel of peace. Ready to spring forward and, and share the gospel of peace. This great truth that you through Jesus Christ have made us all able to be one with you again. This helmet of salvation. The shield of faith. That we'd be picking up our weapons, our defensive weapons. That we can stand against Satan as he comes with lies, as he comes to destroy, as he comes to deceive, as he comes to, to urge us into some kind of rebellion against you. That we have the shield of faith. We have the helmet of salvation. That we think correctly about who you are, about who we are, about how desperately we need Jesus, about how the Holy Spirit is so desperate in our, need, desperately needed in my life and in our lives. Fill us with him, your presence. Cast down every idol. We sang that song, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. This is putting on the armor that we would be a sanctuary for you. That we would have the sword of the Spirit, the word of God that which just divides so quickly in ourselves, but that which also so quickly refutes the lies of the enemy. Teach us to pray, God, to be alert with all perseverance. We receive these things from you. We want to be ready. Can we sing again that chorus that we ended with, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary? Can someone start that? This is our benediction. You have said these words yourself, brothers and sisters. I say this in Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace this morning.